0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy, Ocean Chinook or Puget Sound Coho, what is your palate favorite? And you drop yeah. that kokanee on top of that barn door halibut's head. 67 feet of water, and he was not happy about that. Well, I don't know, what do you think, boxers or briefs? Ooh, I'm gonna have to go with a,
2: a European cut speedo. Fantastic, excellent choice. I yeah. love tuna, I do love tuna. Heck yeah! <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I have a buddy who refers to Canadian geese as flying carp. Obviously <laughs> he's not cooking
1: them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he clearly, right? Oh, ocean schnook. Seriously? Hands down. Really? Hands down. I don't fish for coho. Ah, good point. Hey, speaking of grind, can you tell the difference between ground deer and ground elk? Honestly, taste the difference.
1: You know, Dwayne, we only get one chance to live this life. Mm -hmm. And you will always regret the things that you don't do. So you know what I tell people? Buy the damn boat. Hey, you know, the facts are some days are just a grind.
2: Welcome to Fish on Northwest, the number one fishing and hunting talk show throughout the Pacific Northwest and beyond. Now here is your host, Dwayne England, and of course, the infamous Tommy Donlan. Hello and welcome to Fish on Northwest, Wayne England, and yes, you may have noticed to my immediate right, this is not Thomas Donlan. <laughs> <laughs> this is, by chance, David Trout, Director of Natural Resources for the Nisqually Tribe, of Indians. Uh, welcome back to the studio, my friend.
0: Thank you. It's so good to be here yeah. with you and your audience.
2: Yeah, so you're not just uh, sitting in tonight as my in-studio guest. You are uh, now uh, tasked with the co-host duties and responsibilities. Oh, so now
0: you tell me that. Are you
2: up to that task? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think I can handle it. Perfect. So I won't so, take Tommy's job. I think he's safe. Yeah, I'll. I think he's pretty safe in that regard.
2: But yeah. you are going to bring a lot of information that our folks tuning in tonight are definitely going to want to hear. I've been looking forward to this. You and I have talked a few times about getting you back here in studio and here you finally are. we got a lot of great information to get through so i'm really looking forward to this so welcome david Trout, back to the studio uh we're going to get to him here in a little bit lots going on lots to get through some fishing this week things are happening if you're not on the water you're missing out Um, before we get too far along hey i want to say first and foremost happy anniversary to my lovely bride 32 years uh today uh, Shing and I have been married and um, just keep, uh, keep on moving ahead. So I want to make sure I let her know that even though we're doing the show here tonight on our anniversary, I am thinking about you. So uh, happy anniversary, babe, and uh, looking forward to, uh, you know, after the show this evening and uh, maybe, a little, uh, maybe a little glass of wine or something. Anyway, uh, also want to announce the winner of our Four Season Fighters uh, free tickets for the annual gala uh, tomorrow night, September 23rd uh get to attend that event winner jesse tharp uh ended up winning in that entry and drawing for those tickets uh, jesse tharp won and him and his wife are going and they're actually celebrating their uh seventh year anniversary this weekend as they get to attend the gala um on uh free of charge a uh, little little gift from us to you from us here at On northwest uh, getting you those tickets to go and enjoy that night it's gonna be a great event Make sure you uh, attend and enjoy, and uh, we'll check in to see how it's all going. Before we get too far along, I also want to remind everybody to jump to www.fishhuntnw.com. There you're going to find our coupon, FHN20. That will take you directly to uh, Edge Fishing Rods, the website. We are connected with Edge Rods, so you should be as well. Go to Edge Rods, uh, put in the FHN20 coupon at checkout and you're gonna get 20% off of all fishing rods that are not already connected to any other type of reduced price or coupon code. So with that, tons of things to get through. Uh, I kind of mentioned David fishing this last week. Since last week's show, I actually fished three different bodies of water, which I'm gonna get into a little bit later. Some great Chinook and Coho opportunity out there and uh, got moved around a bit and went after it in different locations, so we'll talk about that a little later in the show, but before we get there, Running down the show tonight, David Trout, as I mentioned, Director of Natural Resources at the Nisqually Tribe of Indians. South Puget Sound, Chinook numbers, management and what's going on. We got him in here to pick his brain. Uh, Then again, David Trout, Nisqually, Chinook. Mother Nature in a shift in genetics, I believe no one saw it coming. So Mm -hmm. that's gonna be an interesting discussion with you. I'm really looking forward to. Uh, FHN quick tip this week with Pro Escapito, the VIP line lock, why you should be using this component if you are not already. Also, the continuation of our egg curing 101, Baraxal fire and mature egg skeins, how to make them durable. I'm going to show you how to do that tonight right here. And then we're back with you, David, Puts you back in the hot seat. Pinnipeds, predation, and what position the tribes can take moving forward. This will be an interesting discussion, to say the least. And then we're going to close out the show with a few of my fish reports from this past week as I bounced around to three different locations, as I mentioned. And a uh, little reminder of some upcoming events and our waterfowl hunts that will be coming up in the near future in November and December. So have you been out fishing as of late? You got any time to get no, out No, I
0: spend too much time in meetings talking about fish. Yeah, that's no good. Yeah, I need to find a way to get out to three different bodies of water. Well, we
2: got guys like you fighting for fish so that a lot of us can get out there and enjoy, and we appreciate that. A lot of the work that you do. Is uh, many reasons why anglers like I have the opportunity to stand on the banks of the Nisqually River and try to go after those fall chinook and coho and, and chum when they're when they're available. So, but we have a lot to tackle tonight. We got a lot of topics at hand here. Um, you're working diligently amongst the amongst the uh, co-managers there, and of course uh, the um, Northwest uh, Tree Tribes and all the work that you have going on. So. We're gonna get into all of that. Uh, first topic at hand when we come back from this break will be what's going on with the Sinsqually River and preseason forecast and kind of how this season materialized. So don't go anywhere. More with David Trout right here at Fish Hill Northwest. We come back after this break. The Fines Marine is the one-stop shop for the Pacific Northwest Angler. The Fines Marine guarantees the best price on a new and best service on a repower for your current boat. Defiance Marine is a Honda premier dealership and one of the largest on the West Coast. Defiance Marine is a boat dealer who proudly sells Defiance, Allied, and Arima boats. All boats are built by West Coast fishermen for West Coast fishermen. Defiance Marine has all your boating needs to help you get out on the water.
1: If you're looking for the best fishing rods in the world, you really do need to take a look at the edge rods. I designed and built new machinery And I think this new machinery has enabled us to build blanks like no other company can build without this equipment. There is no other rods in the world that are as good as these rods. You owe it to yourself to take a good look at them.
2: All right, welcome back in studio here. Dwayne England and David Trout, my in-studio guests. Director of Natural Resources, Nisqually Tribe of Indians. Yes. Yeah, you're a very busy man. Not to mention also the chair of the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council.
0: I take on a lot of responsibilities for the betterment of fish. I hope. Yes, at the end you of the absolutely day. do. Yeah. Uh,
2: you stay very busy in this, and as you alluded to before the break, there are too many meetings, not enough fishing time. So you need to change that first yep. of all. Right? Yeah. No because kidding. You're fighting so hard for the fish, but let's let's start off by talking about your backyard. So Nisqually, uh, you know, it it's had some some bumper years, and we've had some years where we struggle and Preseason forecast coming into this year was what for the Nisqually? It was
0: about 14,000 in total. 14,000.
2: Yeah. On a release uh, from the Nisqually of how many fish?
0: About 3 million Chinook. Right. So
2: are you happy with that number?
0: No. No. Not at all. What would you
2: like to see that number be?
0: We've had survivals uh, back in the late '90s as high as a percent and a half for yeah, chinook, yeah. and run sizes in the 40 to 50,000 fish coming back to the facility. Yeah, that's what we want to see.
2: That's what I'd like to see. I think that's what everybody would like to see. So
0: now it's uh, about a tenth of one so percent. Right.
2: Yeah. The 14,000 preseason forecast. Are we going to meet
0: that? Are we going to make it this year? We're going to be really close. Yeah. We're we're doing our first spawn at our hatcheries next week. And we'll know more about how many fish we have on hand, but it's looking like it's gonna be pretty close to preseason forecast. Okay.
2: So you have uh, two facilities on the Nisqually that uh, are planting those fish. You got the Clear Creek and the Kalama Creek. Yep. What, so Nisqually, Nisqually Tribe basically runs those two facilities,
0: right? Correct, yes. Where,
2: I get asked by folks, like on some of these tribal hatchery stuff, where do the funds come from to generate the ability to be able to run those facilities Sure. with, uh, with tribal folks?
0: So the two facilities are funded differently. The Kalama Creek facility, which is our oldest hatchery we built back in 1979, mm-hmm. um, was funded out of the federal funds that came out of implementing the Bolt decision. So soon after the Bolt decision in 1974, Uh, By 1977, the tribes were receiving uh, funds from the federal government to run hatcheries and to manage our fisheries. And so the funds for Kalama comes from that. The funds from Clear Creek come from a federal case that the tribe brought on after the Bolt decision to get Tacoma to operate their dams more consistent with salmon and for human health considerations. And so we settled with the city of Tacoma, and in part they provide annual payments to us okay. that we then use to run the Clear Creek facility.
2: Gotcha. Okay, well, that kind of clears that up. Uh, you kind of mentioned the numbers of Chinook coming, um, are being released into the Nisqually. McAllister Creek is also a contributor to South Puget Sound. So overall, Chinook numbers from uh, McAllister and or Nisqually and also uh, coho numbers. You guys are uh, raising coho, are you not?
0: About a million coho every year, mostly out of the Kalama Creek facility.
2: Gotcha. Okay, okay. Um, Let's talk a little bit about hatchery practices. Now you'd mentioned the one facility there built in 1979 and as science moves forward and we recognize better ways of rearing fish, raising fish, um, you know, in the hatchery facilities. Uh, has there been some some changes or, um, you know, more modernization uh, to these hatcheries? Are, are we putting in any type of, you know, round uh, holding tanks versus long concrete mm-hmm. uh, rectangular pens? Um, talk maybe about, you know, circular ponds, perhaps even some of the, um, the the food sources you guys are feeding. I'm hearing some indications that some hatcheries are trying to, to you know really put out there more of a natural based uh, food source that these fish would be uh, you know it would be easier for the fish to make that adjustment into the wild once Mm -hmm, they get
0: there mm -hmm. so there's a lot there let me sort of unpeel the onion a little bit Um, once the ESA came about in Puget Sound to list fall Chinook back in 1999 it really demanded that we take another look at the way we run hatcheries to be sure that it's consistent with our ability to recover fish. Mm. And so we've really revamped the way we run both of those facilities coming out of the ESA uh, We openly welcome the hatchery scientific review group to come through our facilities back in the late 90s and early 2000s To have an outside look at what we're doing and then give us recommendations on how to go forward And we've been implementing those recommendations ever since mm. and so one of the recommendations for example is to try to effectively increase the the population size for your spawning population, you know—you could potentially spawn all the females in a hatchery with a single male. And there was a time when hatchery managers would, would because it's just easier, would only use a handful of males, the oh. biggest males, yeah. to spawn with all of the females. Well, that... Really shrinks the effective genetic population pretty of the pretty narrow po- genetic pool. Yeah, right? yeah. Right? So Not now a genetic tree. So right? now we're trying to do basically one-to-one spawning, oh. one male per female. Interesting. It's a lot more work that way, yeah, yeah. but it tries to reduce the genetic bottlenecking that happens in facilities and hatchery facilities. Now our survival has gone down in the last 20 years pretty dramatically more so than a lot of other South Sound facilities. And in part, we think it's because there are some genetic issues with this Green River stock that right. we are stuck with in the Nisqually. And so we're again thinking about bringing in some outside expertise mm-hmm. to help us take a look at it. We're you know, I work on this stuff every day in the Nisqually. My staff sure. do every day. We're really close to this. It may be too close to be critical. Right. And so having some outside eyes come in and take a look at it, I think will be a benefit for us. So well, hopefully this fall we're going to do that.
2: That's a perfect segue. Uh, as we come back from the break, we're going to jump into this genetic strain, this anomaly, so to speak, uh, yeah. this natural migration of fish coming into the Nisqually that kind of caught folks off guard. Very interesting stuff. It all comes down to the science. And we're going to break that down when we come back after this break with more David Trout right here, Fish on Northwest. Allied, the new leader in heavy gauge aluminum boats. Allied boats have standard reverse china and lifting rakes to help you plane faster and run at lower RPMs. Allied boats have several models to choose from, ranging from a 19-foot Mustang all the way up to a 32-foot Liberator. So regardless of what type of heavy-gauge aluminum boats you are looking for, Allied Boats will have it for you. Contact Allied Boats today to learn more about these incredible fishing machines.
1: Hi, this is Joe and Megan from Archery World. Uh, We have four store locations. We are at the Lacey location right now. I just wanna highlight some of our camping gear. We have uh, Mystery Ranch packs, we have crispy boots, we have six hour optics, we carry Havalon knives, we carry Garmin products as well. So uh, it's not just archery, we wanna try to make this one-stop shopping for you guys. And so if you need it and it puts you in the outdoors, we probably have it, so come down and see us.
2: Welcome back in studio here, Fish Hunt Northwest, and my in studio guest, David Trout, the Director of Natural Resources for the Nisqually Tribe of Indians. David, before the break, we're kind of talking about Nisqually. Uh, you had mentioned kind of throwing it out there, you know, the genetic strain, the recognized strain of fish right now, this Green River stock. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before, but to catch folks up on, like historically, not just in the Nisqually River, but throughout Puget Sounds, like how did we end up with genetic Green River genetic stock strain of Chinook in the Nisqually River?
0: Yeah, the Green River stock is in almost every river in mm-hmm. Puget Sound. It was the first hatchery, one of the first hatcheries built in the state of Washington, and was used to seed all the other facilities from the Nooksack to the Skokomish to the Nisqually. And so that Green River stock has been everywhere. Yeah. And we're finding that it just doesn't work well in terms of a rehabilitation recovery stock right it's worked okay in the hatchery but i think we're experiencing now 100 years of it being in the hatchery just not doing as well as it could have
2: yeah i think the mindset back then like build a hatchery uh breed fish you know get high numbers seed them throughout Sound, as you had mentioned and uh we didn't know what we didn't know right we didn't know the the you know 50 year 75 year trajectory on this thing and how um, lackluster of this genetic strain would be, I mean, those fish don't do well. They turn brown in the salt water, mm-hmm. right? They got to come all the way down to the far south end of Puget Sound to get to the Squally McAllister. And they're just, they're done about the time they get there, right? Yeah. So it's not a high quality fish by the time it's getting to the river and the survivability. And, and we've talked about this, the, you know, and we're seeing it. The, I mean, you're planting almost 4 million fish out of the, you know, two locations and we're getting 14,000 back. So there's some, there's some work to be done there. I know mm-hmm. you guys are working hard on it. Let's talk a little bit about this recent finding, or is it so recent? You know, the first conversation we had of this, you kind of blew my mind, caught me off guard. Skagit strain or genetically linked to Skagit River, wild fish, mother nature moving inventory,
0: right? Pretty amazing. So, we are required under the Endangered Species Act to recover a stock in the Nisqually, Mm -hmm. and our assumption was that the Nisqually origin Chinook was gone. Well, we're beginning to question whether or not that's the case, because we are finding through a lot of different work that there is a unique stock, that, wild stock, that seems to be inhabiting the Nisqually, and it seems to be somewhat linked or closely tied to a North Sound, potentially Skagit huh. fish, and it, you know, it goes back to Jurassic Park, the, the notion that, you know, nature, nature takes over, nature right. knows how to do these things. Right. Uh, We come up with this great engineered plan with all these scientists involved how we're going to reintroduce Chinook and the Nisqually. And we go down this path with these Grim River fish, and quite honestly, it's been a failure. Those fish just do not produce well in the wild. wild. And yet, Unbeknownst to all of us, there's this wild stock in the Nisqually that comes in way later than these Green River fish, comes in way later than so our the fisheries. the run timing is significantly different. The worm timing seems to be very significantly different, and all the genetic work we're showing is is that of the smolts being produced out of the Nisqually River, the wild smolts, almost all of them are coming from this other stock that we don't know much about. Huh. The Green River fish are producing very few smolts. Yeah. And so this potential north sound colonizing stock in the Nisqually seems to have taken hold and might be where we focus our recovery efforts.
2: So would that include some type of you know, utilization of that stock or strain of fish, hatchery environment, broodstocking program? Is this kind of the discussions that will begin to happen to see which direction this should go?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have choices to make. And in, in, in the science coming out of some of the work in the, in the 90s and 2000s, you basically have two choices. You can isolate your hatchery program and keep it as distant from the wild population as possible, manage it that way, or you can integrate it with the wild population. Oh. And so we have a choice to make, yeah. and there are consequences to either choice. Right. If we try to integrate, we're worried that we might move these fish closer together in run timing and conflict with our desire to catch fish in sure. the recreational fisheries in our fishery. Yep. So. Our thinking now is maybe it makes sense to manage these as very two distinct segments. Yeah. Uh, maintain a, a strong hatchery population where we can fish really heavily on them mm-hmm. and then lay off of these wild fish and let them recover. And so it and, might, and it you might be your, having our cake and eating it too. You meet your wild fish
2: uh, resurgence uh, requirements. I mean, yeah, exactly. You're, you're basically, you got this later strain which you could be like, okay, you know, either, what does that mean? River closed, you know, there's no, there's no tribal fishery. There's no recreational. We're going to let these fish, uh, you know, gain in strength and numbers and look down the road and see what those numbers really look like. Right. But what a, what a great opportunity. And, you know, the irony here is how many discussions I've had with fishery managers and biologists and stuff and, you know, well, we gotta, we got to minimize strays and we can't have, river, you know, fish coming from this river and getting into this river and we just can't be mixing stocks and strains of, well, you know, and here we have what is predominantly a north sound potential North Sound genetically uh, strain of Chinook that's entering into a South Puget Sound River. All on its own, Mother Nature just going, I'm gonna just push you down here to, you know, reestablish a wall run.
0: Well, and if you think about it from the eyes of a fish, if they didn't stray, we would only have Chinook salmon in one river in the world. 100%. So they do yeah. stray to try to find new habitats, yep. and these fish may have strayed a long time ago. The geneticists are thinking they've maybe been there for a long time. Interesting. And we just haven't we haven't seen them. Very
2: interesting. And so
0: how we manage that population and what we do with it um, to the benefit of fisheries. Yeah. I mentioned that these Green River stock were having genetic issues potentially with mm-hmm. the survival. Mm-hmm. Do we incorporate some of the wild genes to provide some additional um, capacity there, genetic capacity? Or do we bring in another stock somewhere and reintroduce those genes? But we've got to do something about our hatchery population and then think about how we manage that relative to the wild population. Right. But the other thing I think is really interesting, Dwayne, is that in the Nisqually, we've been doing hatchery fish for 70 years. And all the things that have gone on in the Nisqually River, and yet there's still this wild fish that seems to be surviving still that is back. not has not been impacted sure. by these hatchery fish. So, this notion Uh, that you can't have hatchery and wild fish in the same system, we may be giving a different answer to that question. Interesting thought, and I like the direction that is going. Okay,
2: uh, never enough
0: time to get through
2: these topics, but uh, we're doing the best we can. We're going to jump out for a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Uh, Come back after this break. This week's FHN Quick Tip with Pro Escobedo.
1: Contract security service provides day-to-day peace of mind as they protect people, and property here at Phoenix, we provide service for multiple state and federal contracts with services ranging from uniform patrol, alarm monitoring, canine detection, executive protection, as well as investigative work. Recruiting highly qualified officers is the first step in building a strong team. If you are prior military or law enforcement, go to triplew.phoenixprotectivecore.com and apply today. New days, new beginnings, new friends, new loves. New dreams, new goals, new scenery, new job. No matter what the next chapter holds, Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate will be there to help you find the new that's right for your lifestyle at any stage of your life. Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate. Expect better.
2: Welcome back in the studio here, Dwayne England, and my in-studio guest and co-host, don't thank, forget that, Thank you. It, David Trout, <laughs> yes. Uh, we're going to take a pause here on our conversation, we got much more to get to uh, later on the show here, don't go anywhere because I'm going to really drill down uh, with David here on pinniped, you know, predation issues, what the Northwest Treaty tribes can do about this, what the Squally Tribal, you know, can do about this, and kind of the direction things are going, but... Before we get there, we have a, uh, the third installment of our Bait Lab series uh, egg Caring 101. Now, the last couple of weeks have been talking mostly sodium sulfite and sulfite based cures, tighter skeins, um, out of fish, you know, the skeins that are not so mature and beginning to weaken and become loose. So tonight, I want to walk you guys through utilizing Baraxil Fire, some changes we can do to Baraxil Fire to actually use it. In, uh, in an environment where your skeins that you're harvesting from fish might be a little more mature, a little looser, a little less skin. How do I make that a durable bait that's going to fish well? Now, a uh, couple things. <clears throat> Not only do we do bait labs here for our show, but from time to time uh, we produce stuff for Potskies and Potskies TV. The last few weeks I've had so much egg carrying going on I didn't want, <laughs> didn't want to duplicate effort. So this next segment is a pre-record on the topic I just spoke of for Potskies But it's all the same information that we put out there. So I just thought we'd share that one with you tonight. Uh, Big Curing, Egg Curing 101 with Baraxal Fire on Mature Eggs. Check this out. I think you're going to enjoy it. Hey everyone, Dwayne England, Potsky Bait Company, and we are back here in the Bait Lab. Today we're going to talk about curing mature salmon eggs and uh, some things you can do that will make a more quality bait, one that I think you'll appreciate, and one that actually fishes better. Longer duration on the hook, a little more durable bait, and uh, there's a few things we do to achieve that. So we've uh, talked in the past about fire cure, how it's a phenomenal cure for salmon roe for fishing for salmon in the rivers, tributaries, what have you. Um, These eggs here are from Chinook salmon out of a tributary river, so they're quite a bit more mature. And what I mean by that is these skeins have begun to open up, the skin is beginning to break down on the uh, sides of them, so you don't have as much connective skin keeping all the eggs together. So when the skin becomes loose and the eggs become a little more loose, using something like a fire cure isn't going to toughen up the skein and make it a little more durable bait that uh, will fish multiple casts. It will cure the eggs and they will catch fish. You're gonna probably find that you get a cast or two out of them, they milk out relatively quick and the looseness of the skein that you started with, they begin to come apart relatively easy. So oftentimes we get asked, well how do we toughen up our uh, skein to make it uh, last a few more casts or make it a little more durable? So years ago, I started using Boraxofire, which now, understanding this cure, there's no sulfites in here. This is ideally engineered to cure roe that will fish for steelhead. It's salts and sugars and borax. And so it does have properties in there that do, in fact, toughen the skin or the skein just a little bit. Gonna make it a little more durable bait. Um, Without the sulfites, though, you may question whether or not it has enough bite stimulants to entice salmon. Yes, it does. Uh, It works very well on its own. I like to utilize Baraxel fire a majority of the time in the fall when I've harvested eggs out of mature salmon because of this reason right here, looseness and skein, and baraxal fire works very well. I do add a few things to it to make it even a little more enticing to salmon with some bite stimulants and whatnot. I will take a full bottle of Baraxel fire. I'm gonna mix in a quarter to a half cup of white refined sugar, okay? Quarter to half a cup. I like to have differences in cures. A full half cup mixed with this uh, full bottle, 32 ounce bottle of Baraxil I'm gonna fish those eggs low in a system, low in a tributary, tidal water influence. Those, those fish seem to gravitate towards uh, sweet tooth and they like that little bit sweeter bait coming right out of the salt. As they get up further in the system, it seems like they switched to more of a sulfite and sodium-based type of cure with less sweeten, uh, sweetness to it because they've been out of the salt water for a bit. So, uh, sugary mixes near the salt water in the estuary waters and just above, and of course, higher in the system, I go more to a sodium and a sulfite. So, quarter to half cup sugar, depending where you're fishing, if uh, if that matters to you. So half cup, we'll say a half cup of sugar with this 32-ounce bottle, two heaping tablespoons of our firepower krill powder, I like to add the extra krill, and a heaping tablespoon of sodium sulfite. I like to put in one heaping tablespoon of sodium sulfite to this 32-ounce bottle. You may think that that doesn't sound like enough or it's not much. Well, I don't want it to be a strong sulfite-based cure when curing these looser eggs but I do want to have enough in there that does add, in fact, bite stimulants and things that attract uh, salmon, fall salmon. So I have these eggs pretty much cleaned up. This one here has a little bit of blood left in it, so we're going to get the excess blood out of here. Now I can take the flat side of my knife and, and push that blood down to the main vein that runs at the bottom of your skein, and I can pop a little hole right there. We're gonna just use a paper towel and I can, I can move that blood along the vein there. Now these eggs have been in the fridge for a couple days, so the blood begins to coagulate and get a little bit tougher to move. So um, if you find you have a little trouble moving that along, you can put a little bit of water on the top side of this skein here just to keep it uh, moist, and it helps to keep the knife from tearing into the skin, allows it to glide easier, and see, we're moving that blood right down out of that vein there, getting a majority of it out of the egg. Why do we get the blood out? Well, the eggs cure really well. The blood tends to not cure so good and adds a little bit of spoilage to your eggs and begins to have a a foul odor. So I always try to get as much blood out as I can. And that there is pretty darn clean. So, now I got these large skeins. They're mostly opened up. This one here has a little skin intact up here. I'm gonna butterfly these open a little bit just to make sure we get the cure in there. Also because they're so large, we're going to cut these in half, okay, and kind of make them into smaller sections just so they're easier to handle uh, as we cure them. This one here is completely opened up. I don't even need to butterfly that one. And this one here will cut into three separate sections. A sharp knife is very beneficial when you're taking these apart. It pops far less eggs and um, gets right through the skin, doesn't tear the eggs or, or destroy them. So, Now we got these opened up, and I'm just trying to stack them on this paper towel. I like to add the cure while the eggs sit on a paper towel, because as you'll see, when I pick this up, (laughs) if it all stays together, it's easy to put it into the gallon Ziploc bags that I like to cure the eggs in. So now I have my eggs ready to go, blood-free, opened up, ready to accept the cure. I have my premixed bottle of my Baraxel Fire with my sugars and my Firepower krill powder, I love that extra krill. I really think it is a great bite stimulant. You need to put that on your eggs if you're not doing so. And of course, a little bit of sodium sulfite. Now, this is not a real hot cure, so the so-called burning of the eggs doesn't really happen. I don't have the sulfites in there weakening the membrane of the eggs. I actually have more borax and salt in here with the added sugar that is going to toughen. So I can put a, put a pretty good amount on here uh, because I'm just simply putting it on the egg side. I'm not gonna turn them over and, and do it all on the other side as well. Now I take my gallon ziplock, I've marked on there uh, my uh, identifier for my number two recipe or which is the mixture of my baraxo fire here. And with the paper towel, I can just simply pick it all up, slide it into the bag and dump it off like that. Now if I look in here and I think I need to add a little more cure, that's the nice thing about the wide open bag, I can sprinkle a little more on here and call it good. So I like to leave enough air in the bag that allows me to roll these around and get the cure working into the eggs, okay? And what I mean, you'll notice uh, as it begins to work, the moisture gets drawn out of the eggs. the uh, juice starts coming out of the eggs and you'll start building a certain volume of juice in here. One thing I like to do always is to add extra color to my eggs. I really like the fire dye, the dark red <clears throat> as it adds a tremendous amount of color. Now maybe where you fish, uh, you use orange you know or the or the uh, pink. Uh, that all works as well. The UVs and in, in the pink especially is fantastic for certain fisheries. I like here in the Pacific Northwest, we fish a lot of dark red eggs, and the baraxal fire adds a lot of color, but I like to add even a little extra color, and I like to add a little extra juice. Now, you don't have to, but sometimes I will take these and add a little bit of the potski nectar because it's just egg juice, and it helps uh, just plump those eggs up and volumize them even more so that when they're going downriver, they're sending down a tremendous scent trail that you can literally see when your eggs hit the water, okay? And then I'll take the fire dye, this is basically a bottle of four to five tablespoons. I'll add about a tablespoon per bag. And I know just past history, there are a couple squeezes on that. I'm getting about a tablespoon into there. Again, that's just gonna add extra color. Don't worry about the fact that it runs down the sides. I mean, that's why I purposely spray it off the side of the bag so I don't just put it right on top there. This allows me to now roll these around. And over the course of time, all the eggs are going to cure evenly. The, uh, the color distribution is gonna be equal simply by tumbling these around. Again, I leave plenty of air in the bag so there's room and separation. And it allows me to you know, massage that cure into these eggs. So 24 hours, 12 will work. I like 24 hours at room temperature. Allows the eggs to juice out maximum potential and then reabsorb as much juice as they can. So I will literally take these every couple hours during the daytime as these sit in my garage. I come out here, I tumble this bag around uh, every so often and keep that, uh, keep that juice moving. Keep the color distribution equalized and just really maximize the potential for these eggs to cure. Again, it'll release a bunch of juice. When you see all that uh, liquid in the bag, do not dump it out. That does not mean you've added too much cure. It's exactly what you need the eggs to do. Let them juice out. And then after a while they begin to absorb that back in and you're gonna find that there's far less juice in your bag by the next day. One thing you can do is you can, you can leave it laying flat uh, overnight or uh, after about 12 hours or so, I'll even you know, set those down to the bottom there and make sure they're completely surrounded by juice at that point, you'd have a lot more juice in the bag. And I will push the air out of the bag, okay? And I will roll that down and I will let that sit there in that juice for the next 12-hour phase, and it reabsorbs all that juice back into the eggs. And really, the next day when you check on these, you're going to see it's going to look very much like this. There's not going to be a lot of juice left in the bag because it's all reabsorbed back in. But it's a it's a uh, process that has to take place over a 12 to 24-hour period. Um, so these eggs would be much more plump, uh, a lot more color, equally distributed throughout, and uh, then you know they're definitely cured. So. After 24 hours, and they've reabsorbed the juice, I can take these now and I can put them in the fridge for a few days, I can go ahead and freeze them, I can uh, put them into a a bait tray or some type of container, uh, get them ready for the boat or for the the river bank, they're ready to fish. I would give it uh, a full day in the garage, a full day in the refrigerator, and then you can fish them. So just a a couple little things you can do there to toughen up mature eggs uh, this fall season and uh, give that a try. That recipe has worked for me for years, utilizing the Baraxo Fire for your fall uh, Chinook eggs or coho eggs. It does really well, and I think you'll be happy with the results. All right, that's gonna do it for us here in the bait Lab today. Give that a try, and thanks for watching. Oh, welcome back in studio here hopefully you enjoyed that uh bait carrying 101 braxel fire and mature indoor adult uh, chinook eggs and some things you can do to make a much more durable bait i can tell you that over the years fishing that exact recipe in the fall throughout in uh, the greater grays harbor region out on the coast um, even some of the northern rivers chinook and coho flat out respond to that recipe it's a higher amount of krill a little bit of sugar in there and just the, uh, just the sprinkling of that sodium sulfide with those bite stimulants really does a nice job. And of course if you're adding any of that uh, dehydrated sardine powder any of the other powders I've taught you over the years how to do um, that's just an added bonus and it works tremendously. If you guys want to know more information on dehydrating fish baits, how to grind it into powder and how to apply that to your cures, let me know. We can certainly bust that one out in the, in the bait lab here in the near future. To expand your uh, opportunity there. So, um, hopefully a good, uh, good amount of info there and uh, some of you can use it. And if you do, go out and find success. Please let us know here at Fish on Northwest. Love to see the pictures of you finding success. Okay, we are gonna jump out for a quick break. We come back, more with this gentleman right here. Pinniped predation, hood canal blockade, how about smolt survivability, out migrant, and a uh, number of other things on the docket. More in fisheries recovery and science. We come back here with David Trout, right here at Fish on Northwest.
1: A Northwest favorite for almost 40 years, Arima boats are manufactured with pride in Bremerton, Washington. All Arima boats are built without any structural wood materials. That is why Arima boats are backed with a lifetime warranty. Arima can offer every boat with Honda outboard packages so that you can take advantage of the reliability and five-year top-to-prop warranty from your Honda outboard. Call or stop by ARIMA Boats today and let them help you get into your very next boat.
2: Welcome back here in studio to win England. My in studio guest, David Trout. If you missed it earlier, Director of Natural Resources, Nisqually Tribe of Indians. You're also the Chair of the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery uh, Council.
0: Correct, yep. yeah. A
2: lot going on there. And as you mentioned at the start of the show, far too many meetings and not enough fish in which he needs to change that behavior. No kidding. Uh, uh, very soon. So, you and I have had multiple discussions over the years, and I always appreciate the insightfulness you bring. And uh, one thing that we cannot ignore is the amount of pitiped predation, not just in Puget Sound. Columbia River's been an ongoing issue. Um, some movement there to, to get moving forward in controlling some of these. And they, they have some factual numbers that they brought out um, at the uh, Willamette Falls, for example, a couple years ago. They removed uh, 33 uh, adult uh, you know, sea lions, mm-hmm. California sea lions. They saw a tremendous uptick in wild steelhead survivability that immediate uh, next season from like 800 the year before to 3,400 that immediate year, right, by removing 33 Mm -hmm. uh, sea lions just in that particular area. So you guys have recognized the pinniped predation issue within the Nisqually Delta in this region. Um, How big of a factor is that in, you know, having successful recovery in in the Puget Sound and South Puget Sound?
0: right well i think would be helpful is if in the bait lab you would have like seal recipes because that could help promote the discussion maybe that
2: that involves tommy uh talking uh, lead and ammo load trajectory okay. of bullets and well tommy
0: know, hurry back get wh- in the studio here <laughs>
2: which uh, which gun we should be using <laughs> is how that all comes out but, we uh, have
0: that discussion all the time in my office yeah um, so we've been working on steelhead recovery in particular right in the Nisqually for a long time it was listed again in in 2005, as being threatened. When mm-hmm. I started back in '87, it was the strongest wild run, outside of the Skagit in Puget Sound. It was about 8,000 fish strong.
2: And to be clear, the Nisqually has never had hatchery production of steelhead. These are all wild, all genetically wild unique genetic fish in the South Puget Sound, the Nisqually River. That is one uh, one thing you can stand and tip your hat to is that you've never
0: they've never you know transitioned to a hatchery support right, program here. Right, right. And we were desperate. It's at low points that we thought about it, but The risk was too high and the benefits were too low. And so the population dipped from 8,000 down to 500 almost overnight and hovered around that number for about 30 years. And Mm -hmm. put it in context, our escapement objective is 2,000. So we haven't met our escapement objective since 1992.
2: I thought you guys hit it in about 2015 or 16. It was
0: really close. Okay. Uh, Oh,
2: yeah, it was just right under 2,000. We were 19 and some change. Yeah, yeah, 18,
0: 18 plus. What's
2: interesting is, I mean... I look at the upper watershed system of this Nisqually mm-hmm. Basin, the Little Michelle up there above Eatonville and all the contributing little creeks and streams and the, the gravel and just the natural state of a lot of that stuff, it looks really healthy. It seems to be healthy.
0: Yeah, on the surface it is, but there if you get dig a little deeper, we've got um, forest management issues in the Michelle Basin, the okay. big tributary to the Nisqually. Um, That produces steelhead, and the way it's currently being managed, it's it's resulting in less habitat and less water for steelhead and coho. Interesting. And so there's there's complications going on, but relative to the the pinniped stuff, we. The Nisqually still produces a lot of smolts, steelhead smolts. The, mm-hmm. the fish that do spawn are very successful. And we have the biggest smolt in Puget Sound, so they're big and healthy as they leave the Nisqually. Oh. But yet the, coming back to the Nisqually, survival is really poor, and we want to better understand that. So we started putting in acoustic tags into right. the bellies of juvenile steelhead and then tracking their migration through Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. And a couple of things that were really interesting. One, it only takes 13 days to get from the Nisqually to Port Angeles. So these fish are booking through yeah, Puget Sound. Two weeks. So, yeah. so food is probably not the issue for these right. for these fish, right. but the survival between the Nisqually and Port Angeles is about somewhere between five to eight mm-hmm. percent, so 95 percent or more of these fish are dying in 13 days. Didn't you guys discover this back in the late 90s? It was uh, mid-2000s, mid-2000s, mid-2000s. mid-2000s. Yeah, yeah. and so as we put out more tags, we were seeing this again and again and again, and then we noticed when we had the transient killer whales spend some time yeah. in South Puget Sound in May coming down to feed on seals, they're marine mammal eaters. Mm-hmm. And when they came down into into South Puget Town, those years, the survival from the Nisqually to Port Angeles went from 5% to 30 to 40%. Interesting. Massive increase.
2: And to repeat, these are the transient orcas, not the south resident. Exactly. The south resident are not seal eaters.
0: Right. They yeah. are pure fish eaters. These right. are just mammal eaters. So, yep. either they're eating the seals, or at least they're affecting their behavior, so the seals are out of the water. Interesting. The other thing we've noticed is that when we've had big anchovy spawning incidents right. in the upper parts of our inlets. The seals will move up up into those inlets to mm-hmm. feed on the anchovies, and our steelhead make it through. And again, we see 30 to 40 percent survival to Port Angeles. So those two things really say there should really be a smoking gun around seals. Sure, it is the factor that's <laughs> like keeping that. our our stock from recovering. Right,
2: right. Well, there's another blockade too that impacts the outmigrant uh, survivability of steelhead and, and in but. The, the Hood Canal Floating Bridge, and I read a recent report on some engineering factors that are going to be implemented, I believe starting this winter, yep. and they're, they're, they're trying to build a floating device that is going to negate the 90 degree blockades and there's several, I think there's upwards of six. I
0: think six or seven, that yeah. That these
2: fish get caught up in and then it sounds like the pinnipeds, just that's just like a royal fork for them in that location as well. Yeah.
0: For, for whatever reason, steelhead out migrate in the top two feet of water. Yeah. They don't go any deeper and so they're migrating through Hood Canal and there's this big blockage across the entire area of Hood Canal except for a few spots. So these fish are hitting the bridge and looking for ways to get around it and they're running into these weird, 90-degree angles that create mm-hmm. flow problems, and so they get stuck. And as they're stuck in these whirlpools and these flow issues, seals are very smart, and they figured <laughs> out there's easy pickings going on right. there, and, and they've just absolutely destroyed the steelhead populations in Hook Canal. So, long live the kings, the tribes, the state have been working on some ideas to change those flow patterns around yeah. the bridge to maybe make it easier for the fish to get through, and so they're going to do that. We're, we're trying to find, fairly low-cost engineered solutions before we get into do we have to lift the hook canal bridge or completely right. redesign it
2: right oh my gosh talk about billions of dollars yeah I'm hoping these uh, these uh, above water these suspended or floating uh, barricades will help in, yeah. in negating the uh, the trap zone so to speak of where these smolter are finding themselves right um, so one question that that comes to mind you know the Northwest treaty tribes is a powerful group that mm-hmm. uh, gets a lot of things done and you know are they, uh, are they raising the flag on the, the pinniped issue? Is Can they carry a lot of weight back to D.C. and make some changes? Is it the Marine Mammal Protection Act that is the blockade to keep us from getting uh, the, or having the ability to move forward in in mitigating and removal of some of these uh, pinnipeds throughout Puget Sound region? Yeah,
0: I think the answer to three of those questions is yes. Yes. Uh, the <laughs> okay. tribes are concerned. The tribes are active and mobilized. The tribes are talking to their federal delegation and the federal Mm -hmm. government to try to do something. Unfortunately, that process moves really slowly and not fast enough to to really be helpful. And so we've gotta go out and look for allies, allies that are, are out there willing to lead. As I was talking to you earlier, we've got a congressman who came out to visit the Nisqually from Arkansas, Congressman right. Westerman, mm-hmm. who yesterday introduced a modification to the Magnuson-Stevens Act oh. to allow for hunting of seals and sea lions in Puget sound to support salmon recovery. And so that kind of action, along with changes in the Marine Mammal Act, will allow us to go out there and manage these populations to see survival of steelhead go from five percent to thirty percent for the Nisqually. It'd be huge. Is this a
2: two-year trajectory? Is this a five? year trajectory i mean things take time to get through the take federal time.
0: level right right i think that originally we were thinking it was maybe a 10 or 12 year trajectory but i think because of the leadership of congressman westerman and uh, and the active involvement of our delegation mm-hmm. it could be a three or four year thing so it could happen sooner rather than later it does take time oh yeah but um hopefully not as long as it's taken them a cost to get to hunting a whale again <laughs> It's been 20 years yeah
2: crazy um, so look you sat on the orca task force as well mm-hmm. Lots of meetings, lots of decisions uh, came out of that in an effort to uh, get higher, higher returns on our salmon, Chinook predominantly, to feed the orcas because the orcas are starving. Uh, a simple-minded individual like me sits back and goes, well, this is great. We're going to dump all these salmon smolt into Puget Sound. I'll be at net pens or contributing hatcheries out of certain rivers where we're not impacted by ESA restraints and all those things that weigh in. Um, but we're going to dump all these smolt into Puget Sound in an effort to get more returning adult salmon, but we have an out-migrant issue with all the pinniped impact, and so aren't we just truly feeding the pinnipeds before we ever get a chance to have adults returning to, to feed the targeted goal of, you know, the yeah. south resident uh, orcas.
0: It, it sounds like you were sitting in a lot of the ochre task force <laughs> I'm just meetings. Just going,
2: we can't keep feeding the monster, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, and
0: not do something about it first. Right, I mean, not only are the pinnipeds, seals and sea lions especially, affecting things like Nisqually Steelhead and Hook and Owl but they're eating the food that should be feeding also s- southern resident killer whales. Right. So by doing nothing about their populations, we're making a choice. We're making a decision that we favor them over southern resident killer whales, over treaty tribes, over non-Indian recreational Mm -hmm. fishermen. Mm -hmm. And so it's time to start managing these populations In a way that supports the ecosystem. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we've got the transient whales that are dependent on seals. Right. So we gotta be careful that we don't eliminate their food supply. But there's there's science and there's a balance point to be reached that'll support salmon and killer whales and fishing. And we're not there yet, but we need to get there.
2: I think the goal is to train the transient whales to stick around Puget Sound for a couple of years. Yeah. There's plenty of food here for them.
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) Just, you know, stay here and eat.
0: We need to be able to drop a fence at the Tacoma Bridge when they come in and keep them down for a while. Sea World.
2: (laughs) 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 Puget Sound. (laughs) Sea World, right? Uh, Yeah, definitely something needs to be done. Uh, I'm going to switch topics here before we get out for a break, but um, a few folks are asking or have indicated, man, are we ever going to get crabbing back South Puget Sound, Area 13?
0: Hmm.
2: What's the what's the, what's the problem? So, so I, I wish I had a
0: good answer for that. Yeah. The answer is not anytime soon, right? Unfortunately, for, for the non-Indian folks or for the tribes, the work they were doing in my office and my lead my lead biologist on this um, have concluded that our crab come from the ocean. Mm-hmm. So ninety percent of the crab that live in South Sound are ocean young ocean crab that float in on the currents and then settle out in South Sound. Mm. But it requires the right current conditions and wind conditions to favor that transport. And we haven't had that transport in over 20 years really now, there was a time it when just we
2: completely shifted
0: it's completely shifted the timing is off Current and shifted and for a lot of times there wasn't any of the currents going on at all interesting and so it requires a spring offshore wind flow associated with the currents and it hasn't aligned in almost 20 years That's and a crazy. lot because of the blob and temperature yeah. issues in the ocean being yeah. a lot warmer mm-hmm. um so until that shifts and, and, and you probably remember, and I remember, being able to go down off the mouth of the Squally and catch these monster crab yeah. in no time. Yeah. Um, we, we had a tribal fishery. We caught 120,000 pounds one year, and there were a lot of crab. Yeah. Um, but we haven't fished in 10 years because oh. they're just not there. And so until we see that shift in the ocean, we're not likely to see very many crab in South Sound, I'm afraid.
2: I think South Sound's going to end up, uh, you guys are going to have to develop a crab hatchery. And go out there and seed uh, right. Puget Sound with uh, with baby crab.
0: You know, we're talking about bulk kelp and eelgrass uh, mm-hmm. art enhancements. Yeah, we're willing will, to will do that as well.
2: Hardening of the shorelines. If you and I talked uh, well over fifteen, almost twenty years ago, yep. is uh, another another. That is <laughs> issue my here. soapbox. Yes, it is. Yep. Yes, hardening of the shoreline. So, okay, uh, really good, really good information there, David. I appreciate all of that. Uh, we're going to jump out for a quick break. We come back got a few fisheries to catch up on, been out poking around a, a number of different areas this last week since last week's show. Fishing is good. And if you're not taking advantage of it, you are missing out. Also going to remind you on a couple of events we have coming up and some hunting dates for waterfowl, all that and a little bit more as we close out the show here with David Trout, in studio guest and co-host for this evening here, Fishing on Northwest.
1: All Defiance Boats are built without any structural wood materials. That is why all boats are backed with a lifetime warranty. All Defiance Boats come standard with large fish boxes that are fully insulated so that you can ice your fish properly all day. All Defiance Boats are foam flotation filled and unsinkable for the ultimate in safety while fishing offshore. Before you buy any boat, stop by or call Defiance Boats today to ensure you are getting the very best glass boat your money can buy. Cutbacks in funding and fewer law enforcement resources are affecting our businesses and communities. If your business is feeling the effects, Phoenix Protective may be the solution you are looking for. They offer security solutions customized to meet your needs. From remote video monitoring in their 24-hour control center to a proactive, experienced security professional on-site, Phoenix Protective has over 20 years experience in ensuring the safety of their customers. Team members are highly trained and proactive, giving them the ability to adjust to the changing needs of their customers. Customers choose to work with Phoenix Protective because they provide the next level in security support to industries such as schools, hospitals, transit, and utilities. For a security assessment to see how Phoenix Protective can help you and your business, Visit their website at www.PhoenixProtectiveCore.com and select Contact.
2: Welcome back in studio here as we wind down the show. So last week uh, after Thursday, that Friday headed south about two and a half hours, jumped in the boat with Pro Escobedo and, and Alex Moslov from uh, from Edge Rods. And Pro's just a fantastic uh, individual to fish with. If you ever get an opportunity, I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. But uh mid-stretch there in the columbia gorge area below beacon rock and um, did not take us long there are so many chinook coming up into that columbia river below and above bonneville in the areas that's open if you have opportunity right now to go after chinook or still want to go after chinook you know don't think because you get above bonneville the genetics are uh, so bad that those fish are going to be brown and taste terrible i'm here to tell you and herzog and i have pointed out a number of times those fish are built for mileage you know mm-hmm. and, those spring Chinook that enter that Tumwater Creek facility up there on the uh, midpoint of the Wenatchee, mm-hmm. they, they have a total of 700 miles to migrate to their, get to their spawning ground. So, you know, genetics are an amazing thing. If you never take an opportunity to get in on some of those Chinook above Bonneville, uh, check out some of those fisheries going on up there or now below that it's reopened. you got a one-fish limit, hatchery or wild Chinook, and the water is uh, the water is pretty warm, 60, if I remember right, 62, 63 degrees uh, definitely a spinner show uh, or a Brad's mini cup plug, kokanee cup plug with some tuna is going to get it done. 360, short leaders, lots of whip, uh, 16 ounces of lead on your troll. And uh, it's pretty uh, pretty matter of fact. It's um, For those that have it dialed, they're doing very well. I was I was uh, on the receiving end of just the opportunity to jump into somebody else's boat. That individual pro is uh, named aptly because he, that is his home waters. That's his backyard, so to speak. Definitely a great opportunity to get out there on that Columbia. Lots of fish around. Go get yourself a Chinook. And then bounced up here to Area 10, put the downriggers back on the boat, went up to Area 10, fished mm-hmm. coho for a day, got some mm-hmm. friends out, got into some coho. My buddy Matt Messing jumped on, marking tons of fish. I mean, rod should have been going off every other pass, you mm-hmm. know, and um, I guess uh, the anchovy bites been pretty good up there as of late. A few friends of mine have been spinning some anchovies and doing well. Uh, you're up higher in the water column, you don't have to worry about the dogfish grabbing your
0: bait and whatnot. So. And are you uh, out in the shipping lanes and over deeper water?
2: Uh, yeah, we're in that three to 600, mm-hmm. you're off the Shoal Shoal side, um, you know, anywhere from the oil docks down to West Point, that mm-hmm. entire stretch seems to be fishing pretty well. Um, and uh, lots of fish, man, they are just kegging up in there. I gotta, I gotta suspect this coming weekend here that ever or, uh, yeah, the Everett Coho Derby is going to be well attended going to be some nice fish. And i if you're up around that Skagit area and those bigger fish coming in, I think that's going to be a derby winner. It might take a 14, 50-pound fish to to win this derby. That'd There's be nice. Ed,
0: Edmonds yeah. wasn't as big. It was like no. a 12-pounder at yeah. Edmonds. Yeah. yeah, it was
2: just sub-13. Kind of interesting. So they but should be
0: 15, 16s.
2: You know them coho, when they get to this point mm-hmm. uh, in migration, they strap that feed bag on. They're putting mm-hmm. on a pound a week, mm-hmm. you know. So um, <clears throat> tons of feed out there, tons of food for them. And, uh, yeah, they're nice size and then of course uh, out here more the coastal region area where I fished uh, yesterday, going back tomorrow, out in the uh, the harbor area, uh, man, who doesn't want to do a shallow water coho fishery? And these coastal these coastal coho are second to none, David. I am, you know, I've been fishing passionately out here in the rivers and whatnot for just over 35 years now, and I'm here to tell you, any of these uh, contributors like the Sats up in the Wainucci and the Hump Tulip, Chehalis Basin. Um, those fish that enter out into those waters, you know, they come past through Westport there. Some of the best coho stocks we have in this state. Mm-hmm. This state, as a fishery uh, manager and one that oversees a lot of fisheries, you understand what this region can be and what it has been on some years.
0: I remember fishing the sats up when I was in school and catching 18, 20 pound coho. Yeah. They're just amazing fishing everywhere. They're
2: river. still around. Yep. They're still around. And so uh, you have time to intercept those. The beauty of this uh, entire region out here is we have a two fish limit. Through the end of October, in some regards, uh, depending where you're fishing, um, non-select, and that uh, the, again, that carries through the end of October. <clears throat> What's interesting is we're not going to get any rain here, I don't think. Looking at uh, all different weather um, projectors and you know river level projections and all these things that I try to weigh in on and, and see what Mother Nature is going to do. Now, that could flip within 48 hours, and also we got a storm that moves in, right? right. But uh, the long range forecast would indicate we're not going to get any substantial rain that's going to bump these rivers to possibly mid October. Mm-hmm. When that happens, those fish stage up out in the salt water. They're going to be in the lower stretches of these bigger rivers on the tidal influence. They're going to move in, they're going to move out. So you adjust your fisheries accordingly. Mm-hmm. It's like the drift boat stays in the driveway, the pontoon boat stays in the driveway. It's either going to be the big boat out in the salt water or a foot on some of these lower stretches where you can fish tidal water with bobber and eggs and twitch and jigs. Mm-hmm. So these rivers will be opening, uh, that aren't open right now, uh, October 1, which is just around the corner. And again, we're going to have low water, so don't, you know, you may think you're going to go to your favorite fishing hole, either float down to it or walk in, and there may just be a trickle. Some of these streams right now are 200 CFS. Right. And so the fish aren't moving, Um, a few of them, but not the numbers that you would want. And certainly not the numbers of fish that need to be into a hole that's going to entice a a big group of biters. So, you know, the old adage, uh, when it's low, fish low. This is uh, one of those key years, probably to almost mid-October. You're going to need to stay low in the system. Salt water is your friend. Mm -hmm. Uh, Low tidal influence portions of the river is where to be. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be an interesting uh, next several weeks, that's for sure. Take advantage. There is a lot of fish coming, man. I am excited um before we get out of here want to remind everybody we have our dates for our waterfowl hunt with shelby ross ross outdoor adventures coming up here we have two day hunts a two day duck hunt two day combo duck or two day duck hunt uh hunt number one arrived november 6 hunt the 7th and the 8th two days of duck hunting two nights lodging dinner included both nights and uh, 375 per day Hunt number two, will be arriving December 12th. Hunt the 13th and the 14th. Two-day hunt once again. Uh, it's a day of duck, and Wednesday the 14th is a day of uh, goose hunt. We got two nights lodging, dinner included both nights. Again, 375 per day. <laughs> Call Shelby at 509-750-7763. Book your spot and get all the finer details from Mr. Ross, Ross Outdoor Adventures. Uh, It's filling up quick. We have a maximum of 12 spots per day for any and all of the hunts and uh, they will fill up Folks are chomping at the bit to get out with us We had a great time last year looking to do that again this year So those hunts are on the calendar and we can't wait to get over there. It's gonna be a good time I'm gonna
0: call when I get home.
2: Are you? Yeah, I I may
0: have to do that. Yeah Yeah. uh, If you want to do a double uh,
2: duck hunt and or uh, one day duck one day geese, it's just, uh, it's a special place over there. You hunt
0: potholes all that much? It's been a while, but I used oh, to. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. and that price is a bargain.
2: Yeah, especially for lodging Yeah. and dinner, dinner. both nights. Yeah. And
0: uh, you get treated to some uh, duck
2: kebabs and treats in the duck blind during the day, so you really don't even need to pack much food. And you're too busy shooting ducks anyway, so <laughs> just a really good time. That and sounds then, awesome. you know, <clears throat> other dogs to retrieve. You just got to sit there and pull the trigger. Shelby and guys can, do all the calling. We're just there to have fun. I can do that. with folks. Yeah, it's yeah. a great relaxing time. We'll have a lot of fun, so I'd love to see you come join us. That'd be a good time. That, that would be fun.
0: Uh, yeah, with that, hey, I want to thank you for coming in. You bet. Hey, Tommy, you know, this feels pretty good. I've been looking oh. for a second career, so <laughs> second you know, if you ever you're out, just let me know, and I'll cover for you, yeah, man. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you're
2: <laughs> welcome back here anytime, especially with the uh, information you bring. I hope you guys enjoy the information this gentleman threw out for us to uh, regurgitate and digest, understand kind of some of the other side that's going on in fisheries management and things that uh, we're all working towards. Uh, you got your thumb on it, man, right here in the Squally Delta and with the tribe and all the work you're doing. And it's just nice to hear from the other side of the co-managers from time to time, just so we kind of keep up on what's truly going on. I appreciate your uh, willingness to come in and share
0: Anytime. your insight, man. I absolutely
2: love it. Really good stuff. All right, that's going to do it for us this week here. Fish Out Northwest, thanks for joining us. Check us out on Root Sports if you haven't. We're pretty much on every Saturday, Sunday morning. Check your local listing. Saturdays is usually about 9 a.m. Sunday, somewhere 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And then sprinkle throughout the week on a Wednesday or Thursday. You can find us on Root Sports. First half hour of the show each week is uh, then put up on Root Sports multiple times throughout the week. So check us out there and please enjoy. Take our content, share it around, jump to our YouTube channel. Give us a subscribe and follow if you would. And uh, invite all your friends to join the party each and every week. Get out. Get some fishing done through the weekend. Weather looks fantastic and the fish are here. Have a great night. We'll see you next Thursday right here at Fish Hunt Northwest. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Fish Hunt Northwest weekly podcast. I want to remind everyone that you can catch our weekly live stream show on our Facebook page and, of course, our YouTube channel every Thursday evening at 6 p.m. West Coast time. You'll get our insightful in-studio interviews, our extremely detailed how-to segments in the Bait Lab, the infield segments we bring to you when we're on the water or in the woods, and of course, our amazing cooking recipes in the kitchen with co-host Sherry England and Chef Jeff Maxfield. Give us a follow on our Facebook page at Fish Hunt Northwest. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel at Fish Hunt NW. Find us on Twitter and Instagram, and finally, Go to our webpage at www.fishhuntnw.com for all the latest and greatest info. Join us each week here on our podcast. Join us each week at our live production. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you soon.
1: Thank you for listening to Believe.